The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Film Jitsu, the podcast that wields films like deadly weapons. I am Mike. And I am Jay. On this week's episode of Film Jitsu... I was kind of an asshole, yeah. and, and I made Jay watch the 1995 Larry Clark-directed film, Kids, because I, more than anything, didn't ever want to watch this movie myself. <laughs> you guys can share the bathtub. I don't know about that. Yo, Telly, Jenny says what's up. Well, Jenny who? You know Jenny, man. That pretty girl you bought last summer. Oh man, I haven't seen her in forever. What's she up to? Jenny, you've tested positive for the HIV virus. You only had sex with Telly. So that's your new girl, huh? I hope so for now. You like him kind of young, right? Fucking babies. <laughs> I like him new, not like you. Fuck <laughs> you. <laughs> Listen, I'm fucking serious. Where's Telly? Jason, I feel a little bit bad about what I've done. <laughs> I, I don't always, but we've been on kind of this run of police academying and larger than lifing. And I felt like maybe we hadn't really gotten down in the gutter in a while. And, okay. and so I asked you to watch a movie that I revile Larry mm. Clark's kids so i i have to ask was this movie as miserable for you as it is in recollection for me i think that the movie is an endurance test by design and the idea is to shock you with these like freakishly frank yet immature portrayals of these teenagers obsessed with sex and getting drunk and high right but yeah it's kind of like a conservative nightmare it's the type of thing that you would see reported on Fox News and would have older folks absolutely just ranting about. It's a slice of life study about kids in New York City in 1990s. It's it's 24 hours in the life of, and it follows essentially four central characters. You got Telly, who's sort of kind of the lead character, who's 15 years old, and he's a, just a douche. He's just an absolute douche. He's sex-obsessed, and in particular... He's focused on this goal of deflowering two virgins in one day. So the movie mm. opens with the first girl that he's uh, taking the virginity of who is like really young, like 12, 13. So, yeah. I mean, if you start the movie with that, you're coming out of the gate with something so infuriating, so off-putting, so upsetting for people that yeah, it's it's something that turns you off from the movie from the right get-go. And it's really, really frank because the kissing is extremely intimate. It's very close shots. It's very uncomfortable, but it's designed that way. Mm -hmm. And then later on, it kind of provides a little bit of context where they live, how they're parented, etc. But anyway, so you got Telly. Casper's his best friend. Casper is really not any good with the ladies and then you have two female characters that you're that are sort of their foils jenny who is uh the first screen appearance of chloe Savigny, and then another girl named ruby 
who is played by Rosario Dawson. And you meet these two in a group of girlfriends and they're talking about sex. And a lot of the, a lot of the talk is sort of cross cut between the way the boys talk about sex and the way the girls talk about sex. Yeah. Yeah. I know, but there's a difference between making love, having sex, and then fucking. Right, right. Making love is like, yo, you know what? You know what it's like? It's like sweet. And it's real slow, real slow. And sex, it's like, all right. And then you find out that Jenny and Ruby were going to get HIV tested and were awaiting their results because Ruby's been having a lot of unprotected sex. And Jenny had sex once, but she was just like, I'll go with you, you know, just so you're not alone. And Ruby's so scared of the results and turns out she's negative and Jenny is positive. Why? Because she slept with Telly the deflowerer. Mm-hmm. So now we know that this kid's like walking around spreading this. And so the rest of the movie kind of follows Jenny while she's trying to find Telly and tell him, hey, you're probably HIV positive. And then you're following him trying to score with another girl. <laughs> yo, how was that shit, yo? Oh my gosh, so good, dude. That girl. Fuck. Word. She can fuck you. How's your halfway to all of This guy's no virgin. No virgin can fuck like this. Mm, you sure she's a virgin? <laughs> I will say that it's a movie that feels very cinema verite. It feels very much like a documentary. It was definitely. Mm-hmm. This is not a film that looks like it had the budget for the kind of permits that you need to shoot in New York City. <laughs> so there's a lot of run and gun shooting. Which adds to the sort of, I guess, authentic mood of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I probably think, look, I saw this 25 years ago before revisiting it this week. And I dreaded watching it, Mike, because I had the same kind of, I think, thoughts about it that you have. Which is, it's pervy and weird and the male gaze is bizarre when you're looking at people this young. It does feel to me a little more amped up in its effort to scare people. Like this is what's happening to the youth. This is what you should be afraid of. And it, I don't know what the point is other than to be, I don't know. It's sort of, I guess it's sort of exploitive, but it never, to me, it never came off as horrifically exploitive because it had plenty of actual really good performances in it and Mm. it had plenty of i think validity in what it was saying like you really felt like you were living in new york city when you watched this thing with these people i think that was very much what writer harmony corinne was trying to do he wrote the script for this movie at 19 years old oh i didn't realize he was that young i thought he was like 20 something yeah and, and i will say that harmony corinne for me has done precisely one thing ever that i've i've enjoyed and and nothing else uh, this wasn't it, but is it his skateboarding videos that he cut or <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, I, I can get down with spring breakers. I think that's a pretty, I think that's a pretty good oh, film, right, but, right. but, uh, I think in many ways, this is to your point, perhaps what a 19 year old hanging with this certain kind of people in New York city. I don't know if romanticized is the right word, but the exaggerated version of what this guy maybe imagined his life was perhaps Mm. in the same way that at 19, we might've described the way our social life was. And I have to wonder (laughs) is, is your experience with this film now and then 
different because of how further away we are from the age of these characters. When I first watched this movie, I was probably a lot closer to 19 than I am today. And I was really turned off by it because I, I think maybe it was just something that for me felt like this does not in any way represent what most of the people I know do on Tuesdays, right? It was constant. This movie is overbearingly constant with the drugs and the sex and the partying. And it felt Stealing. like stealing <laughs> all of it. And yeah. to your point, it, it feels like a little bit of a scare video yeah. when I know full well that that's not what Harmony Corinne, the writer was trying to do. Right. You're saying Harmony Corinne, you think was writing something that was probably more authentic to him. I know that Larry Clark asked him specifically to write in the HIV experience, right? Like, yeah. what is it like being a teenager during this HIV period? But I think that like someone like Gus Van Zant came in or the Weinsteins came in and they saw the potential to make money off of this. And they are not, I don't feel their intentions were as genuine. And yep. they knew what, what, what it would take to get to market. They knew that controversy would attract money. And so the NC-17 rating probably was like a boon to them in some regard. I mean, Disney decides it can't release it. And, you know, now we've got to set up our own production company, et cetera. Like all this stuff, this sort of controversy that brews up around it. That's yeah, there's no press, such thing as bad just, press, right? Right, exactly. Especially for something that's about teenagers and they're getting high and doing all this shit, right? But when you ask me about how when I was closer in age to the characters than now, you know, is the only thing I can think of that's really different there is that I have a better understanding of who I was back then. I was mm -hmm. still growing up in 1997 when I first saw this because I didn't see it in the movie theaters. I saw it maybe a couple of years later after it was, I was old enough to see it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you probably weren't, but I was. Nope. But uh, <laughs> I saw it on video and I didn't, I was grossed out by it because I didn't have experience. The same thing kind of happened to me when I saw Kevin Smith's movie, Chasing Amy. Mm -hmm. uh, if I remember Chasing Amy correctly, he fell in love with a girl who was gay, right? Or wasn't yeah. she? Yeah, or she yeah. was bisexual or something. And she had that she had that uh, finger cuffs experience yeah. that really, yeah. really, really like disturbed him, right? Yeah. And yeah. I remember watching that and going, God, I don't know how I would deal with that. And it made me kind of reel and spin a little bit because I had uh -huh. no understanding of what that life would be like. And I felt inferior to it. Like you were in over your head a little bit. Very much. Thank you. That would be a good way to describe it. And so when I watched kids, I think when I was younger, I was really turned off because it wasn't my experience. It wasn't an experience that defined me in any way. And it felt transgressive or didn't feel mm -hmm. like authentic. Now, when I look back at who I was when I was 15, not something that I would do when I'm 20, I don't know, 25 three or whatever it was when I finally saw kids. Now, when I look back as a 47 year old man and I go, yeah, man, I talked a lot about sex when I was a kid. I might not be yeah. having it. I might be more like Casper minus the ending, but I might be more like Casper than like Telly because Telly was doing some really reprehensible shit. But fuck, I thought about sex nonstop, you know, and 
I don't know if that's bad or good or what, you know, I grew up in the eighties, who knows, you know, I probably objectified like crazy, but I was a teenager and I don't know, you know, when boys will be boys is okay. And when it isn't okay, you know, I just know I grew up thinking about it a lot. Did I do anything wrong? No. Did I try to pursue anything? No. You know, I kind of fell in love with somebody and then things just led to where they led, et cetera. But I can look back at this now and see this and go, whoa, this is like the really amped up in unsupervised version of a young Jason Santo. Mm. This is someone that doesn't have any moral standing with on anything really other yeah. than this feels good and I like this and it makes me feel cool and I'm going to do it. So he's just unleashed id on this is telly I'm talking about specifically. Yeah. That'd be um, Leo Fitzpatrick's character in this movie. I guess it was the the over exaggeration mm-hmm. to me. It the movie felt to me like like it was made by like an edge lord before the internet had invented edge lord. Yeah, it sounds like it was. It was like it was made by Gus Van Zant because yeah. the guy, yeah. as good as as good as he is for making um, Goodwill Hunting, he's also the guy that made Elephant, which might be one of the most angering films I've ever seen, and is probably the most insulting to teenagers I've ever mm. seen. He paints with such a broad brush filled with stereotypes that I think he is, uh, you know, very um, un- inauthentic. But I think what was going on here with kids, the director and the screenwriter were both in tune to their subject matter and mm-hmm. they wanted to shock but maybe not as much as the producers wanted. I think that they were striving for something a little nightmarish and a little condemning of how these kids were brought up and the infrastructure that they were being brought up in. There's a lot of New York City in this movie. There's a lot about the neighborhoods and the way the kids are treated or the way that they're completely unsupervised and just sort of set loose in this urban jungle. So I think that the movie has a lot to say and it has value, which is something I didn't at all expect at zero. And I guess that's interesting because what I'm hearing is that both of us didn't like this movie Mm -hmm, at a younger mm -hmm. age. And now here you are a grown ass man being a lot more sympathetic and understanding. Yeah. I would have expected older people to your point about how it almost seems like a scare straight video, I, I would have expected it to be even more off-putting as an older person. And and maybe what that means is now through the, the process of growing up and having some context to life and being able to see in the rearview mirror instead of living in the rearview mirror, uh, yes. you're, a, you're able to see it maybe for what it was and, and maybe view it as more of an observer than identifying with the characters and feeling like you you weren't identifying with the characters. Yeah, I think at the time that it was released, it might have been that people thought that they could save the situation, that they felt that this this was where the world was going, mm-hmm. right? That this is where this is what the kids are up to now. This is what happens when you when you have no Christ in your life or you don't have religion or, or, or moral value and there's a president getting sucked off in the White House and maybe that's what people thought and maybe that's what was going through people's head. We need to save the culture. You know, we need mm. to save ourselves. And I don't I never caught into that and I don't now either. I'm not 
I don't look at people younger than me and get outraged. That's not, right. that's not my bag. Yeah. Um, I have a tendency yeah. to look at people that are younger than me and think about what's going right with them instead of what's yeah. going wrong with them. Yep, and for sure. I think that this was an indictment, not of the characters or the generation. I think it was an indictment more of the life that they were stuck in and that this was the, this was the only joy they could find and it's horrifying. And the movie is horrifying. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I'm not sitting here going, I enjoyed this movie. What I'm oh, saying is sure. that it has value. So yeah. you yeah. succeeded, Mike, with the film jitsu thing of making me suffer a little bit. Of course. Yeah. But there wasn't disgust. I wasn't pearl clutching. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Instead, I found myself trying to understand what was happening and yeah, there were moments, there are absolutely moments that are super uncomfortable and weird and and I kind of flinch at certain happenings within the film. Like maybe it's um these it's a lot of it is the kissing. It's just like uh, yeah. you know, like watching kids kiss intimately is not something that I am uh comfortable with. Yeah, and and it isn't on the screen to be titillating either. I think you're no, supposed no, it's to be not. uncomfortable. I don't think with it, it is. No, I do too. I think that's exactly what they were trying to and do. And maybe that's the difference. Maybe when I saw this as a younger person, I thought that this was some kind of glorification of this life. That mm -hmm. I think maybe I interpreted that's this good. as it was supposed yeah. to be titillating. It was supposed right. to be glamorizing because this fast and loose life on the streets when yes. really now it sounds like maybe what was going on here was what Harmony Corinne was saying is maybe this movie wasn't directed at the kids. Maybe it was directed at the adults to say, Hey, you know, when you just let the kids loose on the streets, here's an insight to what they're up to. Well, so like somebody, somebody uh, reviewed it and said it was like Lord of the flies in the city, mm -hmm. you know, and, mm -hmm. and I can't remember what reviewer said it, but I think that that's, that's the correct observation. And I think you're exactly right. As children of the 80s, when we were raised, everything was sex and everything was titillating. Yeah. And so to us going into this, I think that's entirely possible that it was our misperception of it as being something that was allegedly going to be titillating or, you know, exciting. And instead, we found it gross. And you know what? Honestly, that's what I want in my movie making. I can't believe this is where this conversation ended up. But what I want is I don't want movies to feel the same to me at 40 as they did at 19. I want cinema, the same movie, the, the exact same frames on the screen to mean different things to me along the way. The same yeah. way that a good record does. I'm yeah. really pleasantly surprised to find that we had like a grown ass conversation about the movie kids <laughs> because I really thought it was going to just be a lot of like, fuck this. And that was gross. And who does you he wanna, think okay, he is? And, if and, you want to invite fuck this and this is gross, no, let's I, talk I, about I, the MPAA. Let's yeah, talk sure. about okay. that because yeah, let's do that because this is something that really pisses me off. Right. Okay. This movie, if we're reading it right, then this movie has something to say about society yep. and it, and it's kind of an important message. And I think that what the MPAA does with the NC-17, what it did with the X, is it punishes low-budget films with a different vision. It's always these low-budget movies. You think about something like Kevin Smith's Clerks, for fuck's sake. 
that movie got an NC-17 for fucking language. Right. Right? right. Or you or you think about Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn. That is a violent version of the Three Stooges. It's it is, almost a Bugs Bunny cartoon. <laughs> it is absolutely absurdly stupid and funny and slapstick. It's punishing these movies for not fitting in a mold. And yet, you got movies like anything under that Amblin banner that kind of pushed the boundaries. What, mm-hmm. Temple of Doom? There's a guy that gets his heart ripped out. They invented the PG-13 rating to allow for that. Right. If you have money and you have influence, then you can put whatever the hell you want up on the screen, no matter how damaging it might be. Jason, I have to say I am shockingly pleasantly surprised at the way this conversation went thank you for diving into the the kids waters a movie that i swore i would never see again and through your influence maybe i'll give it a try maybe our (laughs) listeners will too so uh, if you're out there and feeling brave enough to watch kids one more time and you want to reach out to us at our uh, social media you want to get to us at facebook instagram drop us a line mike at filmjitsu.net or Jay at filmjitsu.net and let us know what you thought about a revisit of 1995's Kids. Well, Jason, because I am overwhelmingly creative, Mm. our bottom five list this week for kids was bottom five kids you know, know what mike sometimes it's just appropriate you always have to self-deprecate so much <laughs> don't worry about it you don't have to be like you know there was this one frame that used the golden rule so let's compare you know <laughs> i did i did give us bottom five assholes once in a while Which was a time. Wonderful. so there we go we always kind of have that back and forth about how we approach the list i'm interested to hear how you approached yours my big thing was just trying to avoid as many of the overtly icon level choices mm. as possible. So, because if you think about it, bottom five kids, it's so easy. You could fill it with like <laughs> the Omen, Regan yep. from the Exorcist. There's just so many. So I was like, you know what? Nope. No village of the damned. Sure. No children of the corn. Not for me. I totally understand if you decide to go that okay. way. The okay. main rationale was that these kids were not manipulated by something else. Okay. That they that they're not possessed, that they're not demons or something or or yep. aliens, you know, or whatever. And instead, their awfulness was organic and natural. It was a part of them. And that way, my main qualifier really is that uh, these characters are poster children for birth control, <laughs> and that the world <laughs> would be a better place without them. What did you decide? And I want to know what your number five is. Well. I- I actually went a very similar route because I, I felt the same way. You know, Uh-oh. we could have good, we could have good sunned <laughs> this list all day long. Yes, we, we totally. Could have, sure. <laughs> I also, as I thought about it, we might have done bottom five kids on the old show. I don't know. Wow. I, I seem to have remembered that. And so I was trying to avoid some of the ones that I thought would have made that list. Uh, Veruca Salt, who I previously put on my bottom five assholes list. And you can't the talk about son, that movie. <laughs> Yeah, the, the good son for being, uh, in fact, a very bad son. Yeah. I, I recall Baby Herman from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh. But huh. I wanted to challenge myself, like you, to keep killer kids off the list or, you know, overtly evil kids off the list. Uh, there are so many dangerous and scary kids that it would have been easy. Yes. However, per usual, I failed in my effort to do this entirely <laughs> because 
I absolutely couldn't leave my number five choice off the list oh, for reasons. All right. So it's the one that defies the rule. Uh, my number five is not just one individual kid, but in fact, all of the children of the corn. From Stephen King, the author of Carrie, The Shining, The Dead Zone, and Christine, an adult nightmare. Children of the Corn. I had the good fortune to go to a screening of the Children of the Corn with a cast reunion and watch Children of the Corn at a drive-in theater in the middle of a cornfield. So for sentimental reasons, really, <laughs> I, I wanted to include Children of the Corn at my number five because it is breaking the rules that I set up for myself, which seems <laughs> to be a thing I do. But that is my number five. So uh, in, in light of... In light of that, I guess, what was your number five? Well, I kept with my rules. So I started with a kind of controversial pick, and that would be Haley from Hard Candy in 2005, oh, directed wow. by David Slade. Now, it's a super tough one to have on the list, but I include it as my number five because it's worthy of debate, right? While yeah. Patrick Wilson's character, Jeff, is clearly a horrible human being, and if you need the refresher, he's a photographer who lures young girls to his place. And he might be mixed up in a missing teenage girl case. Right. It's Haley who I find most disturbing because, yes, she's avenging her missing friend. But the level of her own duplicity and her rather sophisticated and dangerous schemes put her on the level of like a supervillain. Right. She drugs yeah. and threatens to castrate Jeff all while getting it on film. Uh, there's, yeah. you know, that's like, there's vigilantism and then there's pure psychopathy. And for me, you know, there's an absence of balance in this response. Mm. So, uh, the, sure. Yeah. Do, you know, the, do the ends justify the right, means? Yeah. Right. You know, it's like trick the pederast into taking you home, collect evidence, expose him for the sicko he is, get it. Yep. Fine. But then you go as far as to like convince the dude to kill himself or be exposed there's something way more broken and out of whack here. And regardless of reasons, that level of insanity shouldn't be advocated or applauded. So despite what an incredible job Elliot Page does in the role as Haley, and despite the level of catharsis one might feel at the end of Hard Candy when Jeff gets his, when you really think about it, this is one really, really bad kid. It's a gr I never would have seen it coming. That's a movie that I've seen once. It really knocked my socks oh, off. Yeah. I think Elliot Page was fantastic in the he's, role for he's sure. He's very, very good in it. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, man, that's I could have spent all day trying to come up with your list and I never would have imagined Hard <laughs> Candy on there. So my number four is going to be a little bit more by the book. I think a, a, a little less up for debate. What's worse than a bratty kid? <laughs> What hmm. is worse than a bratty kid? How about a bratty kid played by a 37-year-old Martin Short? <laughs> That's right. I'm going oh. with Clifford from Good. 1994. Wow. A movie that I, I love way more than I probably should. And I'm not even sorry about it. Clifford cracks me up every time. <laughs> There's a scene where he's just walking down an airplane aisle and with his arms out, just whacking everybody in the back of the head as he goes down. It's got that really great Martin Short energy. Yeah. Imagine the sheer weirdness of a feature length film where Martin Short plays a 10 year old. <laughs> and it's, it's played straight. 
Because I never it's saw it. It's straight. Wow. Yeah, it's, it, yeah. And Charles Grodin is the put-upon dad, so he's got oh, that really perfect. grumpy Charles Grodin thing. Oh, man. You see adults play kids in Saturday Night Live sketches sometimes, and it works for a couple of minutes. But Simon from Mike Myers. Yeah. I, I think Short pulls it off here for the whole time. And Clifford is a real shit, because basically by the end of this movie... He has framed his uncle for murder because his uncle wouldn't take him to dinosaur land. <laughs> uh, now I'm wondering if I need to watch Clifford. It, it you feels do. like you do. Oh. You do. All right. It's a All movie right. that I could really see you having a fun time watching with your son. All right. I got to check that one out. Well, my number four is, I mean, it, so this is an interesting territory. We have kids, the movie that we just did as a main review here. And that is a movie about teenagers where teenagers play teenagers, right? Now we're getting into an iffy territory where uh, it's a movie about teenagers, but <laughs> the kids are clearly not teenagers. So mm-hmm. I feel like maybe I'm stretching it a little bit. But my number four is Chris from Carrie, 1976, yeah. directed by Brian De Palma. It's played by Nancy Allen, probably in her 20s. <laughs> but she's a kid. <laughs> I backed off of teenagers. I think for my list subconsciously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also think I backed off of bullies maybe yeah. because in my brain, maybe there will be a day where we do bottom five bullies and Chris would be number would one. Number on one on that list. Yeah. yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yep. Chris is absolutely awful. You know, a lot of people would say for a bottom five list about kids, Carrie would be on there. But sure. she kills everyone in her high school and then does in her own mother with a set of flying kitchen knives. So I, I could see. But it's all, it's so tragic and sad. But it is though. so tragic like, and sad. Car- she's so bullied. Absolutely. And that's right. Anyone that's paying attention would know she's the victim. The worst of the bullies that get her to that space is Chris, who's uh, played with excessive cruelness by Nancy Allen, who's just, she's so gleefully cruel. You know, mm-hmm. and she's the one that tricks everyone into or really pushes everyone into going into that prank. She's the one that stuffs the ballot box. She's the one that gets the pig's blood and, you know, all of it. Yeah. And ultimately, you really end up despising this girl. I mean, she's even mm-hmm. at the beginning when they're all mocking her during her first period in the girl's shower and throwing tampons at her. She's there, too. Right. Because mm-hmm. then she's that's how she ends up getting the detention that ends up spoiling things. And that's why she wants revenge, et cetera. It's a yeah. very hard to watch character. And, and do you do you just really enjoy that evil eye that Carrie gives her her and John Travolta as they're driving yeah. in the car and she shoots that evil eye and it just boom and blows up and upends. Yeah. You're like, yes, yes. And anytime you feel that good, that's got to be a bottom five kid if you're wishing for it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. This was a movie that was so far ahead of its time, but is, I think, in a lot of ways more relevant than it's ever been. We live in a world now of school shootings and all of that kind of stuff. And Carrie was kind of the original school shooter in a way. And here we are, here we are talking about sympathizing with Carrie and sympathizing with being pushed to the limit but you're right i mean you are you are gleeful for for chris to get her comeuppance in that movie mm-hmm. but you, you, and and carrie is such a tragic person but there's an awful lot of collateral damage and yeah, all of that that's right like yeah nobody i guess at the end of the day nobody comes out of that righteous that's right yeah yeah 
That's a great pick. It feels silly to follow up that conversation with my number three, <laughs> but I'm just going to go ahead and let the audio clip speak for itself. I can't hold my tongue. These kids are my grandchildren, and you are raising them wrong. They are terrible boys. Shut up, Chip, or I'll go ape shit on your ass. I'm going to scissor kick you in the back of the head. Yeah, yeah. Turn up the heat. Go on and get some, boys. Come on. I'm 10 years old, but I'll beat your ass. Chip, I'm going to come at you like a spider monkey. Like a spider monkey. Go on. Chip, you brought this on, man. Greatest generation my ass. Tom Brokaw is a punk. What is wrong with you? Chip, I'm all jacked up on Mountain Dew. I love that. You gonna let your sons talk to their grandfather like that? I'm their elder. I sure as hell am, Chip. If we wanted us some wussies, we would have named them Dr. Quinn and Medicine Woman, okay? I think that says everything that you need to know about Walker <laughs> and Texas Ranger Bobby. <laughs> Walker Bobby and Texas Ranger Bobby <laughs> from Talladega Nights. Just a couple of miserable little shits. Just a couple of miserable little bastards. I guess the director was just feeding them lines and it was that sort of <laughs> Will Ferrell thing. But yeah. man, you Good don't, stuff. You, you don't talk to your granddad that way. <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Well, on my number three, I'm going with Hob from Robocop 2. That's the 1990 sequel to 1987's Robocop. <laughs> This is not a well-regarded film, and for the right reasons. It is cheesy as all get out. It's absolutely awful. It's directed by Irvin Kirshner, who did The wow. Empire Strikes Back. I, He's just a workman-like director who just takes jobs. I don't know. He used to teach film, I think, back at um, USC. And this is just a bizarre movie. It was written by Frank Miller, or at least co-written by him. There's Frank Miller from Sin City, who ended up, yeah. you know, with working with uh, Rodriguez. I just don't know what to make of this goofy movie. It's 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 silly. It's a that mega corporation OCP that created the, the the all the trouble in the first movie is trying to gentrify De Detroit, and so it it's it kind of almost partners up in some respects with like this drug dealer who's dealing a designer drug called Nuke. And it's just going to it's going to lay waste to Detroit. Everybody's getting hooked on it and everything. And, you know, Robocop's back along with, again, Nancy Allen. That's two in a row with Nancy <laughs> Allen. So there you go. We Clearly, we're going to have to retire her now. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this this crazy drug dealer in it is this guy named Kane, who's played by Tom Noonan, you know, who most people know from Manhunter is the. The really creepy guy from Manhunter. Yeah. Here he's a really creepy guy again. But the kid in it is this guy. Tom Noonan's character is Kane. He's this terrible, terrible, awful person. So, of course, there's like this 15-year-old kid or 13-year-old kid hanging around with him. Played by a child. <laughs> and he's doing all this vulgar shit. And, it, you know, he's the guy. He's the kid. He mans a giant machine gun at one point and shoots off Robo Robocop's hand. And then he there's a scene where Robocop is is trapped and they are trying to, like, dismember him. And the kid is, like, steering the whole effort to get Robocop. He's like, he says something like, they say he's got a brain. I want to see it. <laughs> like, and Jesus. then at one point, Robocop's got him in his crosshairs and Robocop puts the gun back down. And the kid says, you can't shoot a kid, huh, fucker? 
And then he shoots Robocop in the head. <laughs> this kid sucks. <laughs> this kid sucks. <laughs> Which is even funnier because at the end of his life in this movie, so Kane, the big villain, gets turned into, remember Ed 209 from the first movie? Yeah. That crazy yeah. robot that. Yeah. So essentially they take his brain out and put it in an Ed 209 for reasons. And then it he goes in and. The kid's taken over the drug operation in the three minutes that Kane's been out of action. <laughs> so this 13-year-old kid's running this this drug empire. He's got a suit on and everything. In comes the robot, shoots up the whole place. Robocot comes in afterwards. And then the kid's lying in a in a in a just a pile of money, dying. And this kid's <laughs> awful. And it plays out like a Hallmark moment. It's so terrible. I'm cold. You are going into shock. I will call for a medical emergency unit. Wait, no. Don't leave me. I won't leave you. Who did this? It was big. Bigger than you. It was Cain. I'm gonna die. You know what that's like, don't you? It really sucks. So my number three, Hob from Robocop. Deep it was cut. like somebody was sitting around being like, how do we get Scrappy-Doo into a Robocop movie? Exactly. Oh my God, that's a perfect, that's exactly right. <laughs> well, my number two could very easily be the number one pick for an entire generation of kids. Based on the sheer volume of kids that grew up hating this little bastard, I couldn't let the list come and go without mentioning... Draco Malfoy from oh, the Harry Potter series. That's such a good pick. He's the definitive bully for a generation yeah. of readers and filmgoers. The classic movie bully. He's this privileged asshole mm -hmm. making life miserable for the new kid and his friends. Uh, Tom Felton really nailed the role as a child actor. So well, in fact, that I think he's had some trouble in Hollywood yeah. finding other roles. Uh, but he's a total bullseye here. And, and man, that's kind of not fair because when you come out of it, Daniel Radcliffe has had a really successful post Harry Potter career that I don't think anybody would have imagined for somebody that was definitively that character. Yeah. And Emma Watson, same thing. She's she's found a lot of success in her endeavors as well. And even Tom Rupert Felton, Grint has been in some stuff as a well. A lot of indie. Yeah. He's done some yeah. indie films. And, well, he and, did that TV show with M. Night Shyamalan, That Servant. And he was great yeah. in it. So yeah, and and so poor poor Tom Felton was so good as this son of a bitch kid <laughs> that he's had a hard time finding other roles. He's grown up to be a really good looking guy. Yeah, uh, but yeah, but Draco Malfoy over the course of what nine movies is just this awful little bastard that you hate more and more. And it's like the older he gets in each movie, the more sort of mature and cutting his bullying and torment is, you know, in the mm. first one, he, he teases Harry the way that little kids tease each other. Yeah. And then by the end, he's become a real danger 
and he and has, so, but he's also interestingly he becomes sympathetic as well. So uh-huh. he's doing a really tricky balancing act where yeah. he's he he actually goes from bully to victim yep. by the last movie, and and yeah. you're there with him. You yep. know those movies definitely are a bit of a slog once you get past maybe like five they get a little bit rougher he is mm-hmm. one of the things that's consistent throughout and you know he's given less and less to do but when he's called on he's always consistent so that's that's a good point and that's a great character i mean yeah. you got you got seven movies is it seven movies eight movies i can't remember how many movies there are for harry potter but i mean yeah. that's a lot of material to draw on and yeah. he is he is yeah for sure a terrible terrible kid for sure <laughs> <laughs> uh my number two is actually two kids <laughs> they're siblings aiden and mia from 2008's the lodge uh, this was directed by the duo that brought us Goodnight Mommy, so it's really no surprise that the brother-sister duo in this flick aren't what they appear to be, and everything ends <laughs> in an almost like laughably bleak way. So uh, the setup is pretty simple. It's a young woman named Grace. She's got a troubled past. She's found a lovely new life by getting engaged to an older man with two children. The catch the kid's mom killed herself when she found out about this new girl. The other catch is the girl's troubled past is that her father led a religious cult that she barely escaped alive. And when the dad has to attend a business meeting thing around Christmas time, he concocts this truly moronic plan for the kids to stay with this new young fiance at a secluded lodge. Oh, whoops. <laughs> this, this isn't a great movie. So I'm just going to blow some of the plot twists right now and tell you that I've done everyone listening the favor of watching this so they won't have to. (laughs) But if you don't want to know, just fast forward this episode about a minute or so. And then that way you won't know why these kids are on my list. But now that the warning shot's been fired, I'm just going to go ahead and say these kids are straight up sickos, right? Like Haley from Hard Candy, the level of their duplicity, like the, the sheer ingenuity of it is astounding and it's profoundly upsetting. They use Grace's past trauma and perpetuate an insane hoax that a malfunctioning heater in the lodge has asphyxiated all of them in their sleep. And now they're trapped in purgatory and they go as far as removing all of their belongings, all of Grace's belongings, including her much needed anxiety meds. They take down all the Christmas decorations that were up. They let her little dog freeze outside and die. They move all the calendars and clocks forward several weeks. They create a fake newspaper with a news story about the three of them dying. If that's not enough, they pump excerpts of the sermons from Grace's insane cult leader dad through hidden speakers so she thinks she's being haunted. So when you combine all this with her withdrawals from her meds, the dead dog, and her amped up anxiety, Grace snaps and becomes dangerous herself, thus dropping the conniving siblings into a huge ass dumpster fire of their own making. The whole thing is a mess, and it's all thanks to these meddling kids. Fuck those kids. Fuck that movie. Fuck all of (laughs) y'all. Man, that's a lot, huh? That yeah. is. That it's just that such a, a it's such a mess. It's so over the top. It's the, you know, Veronica Franz and Severin Fiala, they're the like I said the ones that did Goodnight Mommy and 
I struggled with that one. Yeah. But I struggled way more with the lodge. It sounds like the pitch that your freshman year college roommate gives you where he's like, <laughs> you know what if you make a movie about <laughs> what if the detective was the killer the whole time? Like that yeah. guy. Like, wow. That's, that's a lot. There's a lot going on there. It reads better. Like me telling you the story is better than sitting through it. Wow. Yeah. Sitting through it is a real slog. Well, I, I'm glad I won't ever do that. Thank you for that. <laughs> No, as I think it over now, it, it turns out that my list is populated an awful lot through like 1989 to, to 1999. I don't know what it is about the, the <laughs> 90s that really resonated with me with bratty kids. I think because it's going to make it sound like we don't know enough about movies. But honestly, if we were expanding this to things like the bad seed and, you know, all there's a lot of really great kids in a lot of those other eras. Yeah. That, that I just wasn't interested in I, talking about I, them. <laughs> I disqualified. Yeah. So here I am again, uh, 1996. <laughs> uh, a bit of a dark horse here because my number one is Kyle Grant, the little kid from Dunstan checks in. Yeah, you it really is, are in a niche with this. It, yeah, I sure am. <laughs> it's about time that somebody takes this kid to task. This little son of a bitch. Let me tell you, he's been getting off the fucking hook since 1996 and I have had it. So Jason Alexander is his father who runs this gorgeous hotel. And he tells his kid, I'm in charge of the hotel. I need you to just do one thing. Don't fuck up the hotel. My boss is coming to town. It's the biggest event of the year. I just need you to behave. And what does this little son of a bitch do? But he befriends a cat burgling orangutan, (laughs) fucks up the whole goddamn hotel, manages to assault his father's boss with the monkey. I don't know what the fuck is going on, but for some, this kid, I don't, it's, it's unbelievable. The monkey gets all the play in this movie. Everybody thinks about this precocious monkey, but this fucking kid, he's ruining his father's career. He's ruining his father's life. He terrorizes all the people in this entire hotel. And for some reason, we're supposed to find this adorable. That is not adorable. This fucking kid needs to get his. That's why he's number one on my list. And Dunstan checks in is exists because of home alone. I mean, that's why, and that's why you're, you're, you're getting all these movies from that period. <laughs> it's like, that's right. Yeah. Shitty kids, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> shitty kids shitty doing kids. obnoxious things that are allegedly yep. cool. Yep. There yep. you go. Well, my last one is the shittiest of shitty kids. Uh, and I only recently saw this movie, which is very funny. And it was not because of this list, but it ended up being number one on my list. And that's Kevin from We Need to Talk About Kevin. Oh, I thought about it. I have never, ever encountered a movie child that made me quite as raging Mm. and unexpectedly speechless as the title character in this movie. Yeah. (laughs) It's a good movie. It's riveting. It's strange. It's upsetting. But it features Tilda Swinton as a mom saddled with what can honestly be described as like a total douchebag for a kid. All the way from toddler age actually it's even before that you know with the crying it was like and obviously obviously there's two sides to every story and i think it alludes a little bit that the mother might be a bit of the cause somehow but Mm -hmm. 
man, it seems like this kid is just straight up from the from the get go manipulative, deceitful, mean, and just straight up tormenting. He refuses to eat properly, refuses to use the toilet. At one point, he purposely shits himself right after having his diaper changed. He was like at age eight in that yeah. scene. Um, he's intentionally combative with with Tilda Swinton's character. And I got to say, the one of the weirdest things about this movie is the fact that Tilda Swinton somehow married to John C. Riley in it. Yeah. <laughs> that these are the parents of this little turd. Uh-huh. All that aside, <laughs> it, I think that the the nonlinear structure of the film, uh, which is you know directed by and written by Lynn Ramsey, and was adapted by the book by Lionel Shriver, lets you know that all of this awfulness that Swinton's character is being subjected to is moving towards something really terrible and mm-hmm. really scary, and so you're going through all of this with her, and then once you get to the end, it's oof. It's really rough, and but you're never given any reason for it. You're never yeah. given any explanation, and that's why he's so high on my list because his hatred and then that level of just murderous rage that he that he mm-hmm. reaches, all of it toward his mother. It's so punishing mm-hmm. that there was never going to be a way to successfully explain it. So sometimes people are just fucking terrible and that's this movie suggests that and it shows us the devastating effect that that would have on a parent. So that's why yeah. I think it, it that's why it's number 1 on my list. I I really thought about it and I think if I had decided to include it it probably would have gone really far down my list too. It was almost too dark for me to go, go there into, with yeah, kind of yeah. how I was thinking yeah. about kids, but you're absolutely right because it's this punishingly nihilistic view of nature and nurture. And it's a movie that just kind of reaches down your throat Mm. and just kind of pulls the breath out of you for its Mm -hmm. entire runtime. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's absolutely the right pick for number one. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. It's not fun. And that's the difference between our lists, you know, is yours is fun and mine isn't, which is a lot like us on this show. So now, Mike, I guess rather than doing our usual staff picks, we've decided that we're going to switch things up and do this more, I don't know, what would you call this? More conflict-laden Yeah, we're going to argue. Discussion. Let's argue. <laughs> called yeah. Kick 2, Pick 2, which basically means you're going to give four movies and we can only keep two of them the other two end up being erased from our memory, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind style. And that's what'll that's happen. Right. We'll never have those two films. That's the idea. That's the idea. I'm going to really bring it full throttle here on our second outing with Pick Two, Kick Two. Okay. Uh, and again, because I don't believe in rules, I'm already breaking them a little bit here. What are they, six I'm movies? Gonna you, <laughs> I'm not going to give you four films. Oh, what the? F- I'm going to give you four franchises. The reason for that is, is because I think using my own clever logic last week, we can get into a little bit of like, well, if I have the first one, I can get into the others. And I don't want to do that for this particular pairing. So we're going to do four franchises this week. And here they are. Get ready. Okay. They are Ghostbusters. Oh, you dick. (laughs) Indiana Jones. Okay. 
Star Wars, mm. and Back to the Future. Oh, hmm. Wow. Hmm. That's tough. That, I'm making it hard. This is the entire franchise you're saying, right? The whole franchise. And that's why, you know, I thought about doing like Raiders and New Hope and Right, sure. You know, but but then you get into the like, well, there's still always Empire, so it's the whole franchise. Yeah, I think that it's challenging cuz there are Star Wars movies. I remember when the force awakens was coming out i don't think that i was more excited about a movie ever than the force awakens for whatever reason and i remember too when the phantom menace came out i actually went to a star wars celebration oh boy so yeah i may have even dressed as like a jedi for that you 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 may have yeah yeah are you not sure about that i'm not sure actually but i think i probably did (laughs) i I, I feel Uh, pretty sure (laughs) You did that. But that said, the movies aren't great, and you'd be able to forget a lot of the TV stuff, and I don't know that I'd care. So I think I might be able to kick Star Wars, because I already have Star Trek, and I'm more of a Trekkie. Uh, As far as indie goes, Love Raiders, very much like Temple. I'm one of the few people that thinks the Sean Connery one's kind of boring now. Like I'm not as into it as maybe I was back in 89 when it came out. I don't revisit it. And then the, I, I liked kingdom of the crystal skull, but everybody hates it so much that I don't enjoy talking about it. <laughs> so, so that's tricky. And then back to the future. I love all three very, very much. Even the third one. In fact, uh-huh. I really, really like them. Uh-huh. Really, and Ghostbusters is in. Like, there's no. And you you adore Ghostbusters is, yeah, more than no, anything. And give me answer the call. I'll take it any day. Yeah, sure. You know, like yeah, I'll okay, take fine. them all. I don't care. Um, so I'm gonna go with Ghostbusters and Back to the Future. Ghostbusters. So so to be clear, <laughs> I'm kicking Indiana, Indiana Jones, Jones and Star Wars. I'm removing Wars. George Lucas from 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 all of it. I, I'm gonna. I'm going to say something here that's going to make you angry and maybe a lot of people angry. Oh, God. You're going to say you don't like Ghostbusters, aren't you? I think it's time for me to be honest about oh, something. You can't. No, you can't say I, this out loud. No, no, no. I, here's the thing. Mike. In in revisiting Ghostbusters oh, you, over the past few years. What the? F- I, I don't I don't think Ghostbusters is nearly as good as as I think. No, you're wrong. Was. You're a hundred percent wrong. The I timing. The, I, I, think, I will say that Peter Venkman's a, a dink and is a misogynist yeah, sure. asshead and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Every single scene is near perfection. The line delivery. I can't believe you're saying this out loud. I know. I I, I can't believe I'm saying talk it out loud all the to shit, you. Talk all the shit you want to talk about Ghostbusters too. No, Go no ahead. shit talking. I'm not even shit I mean, talking. That's the thing. Like, I'm not saying a single disparaging thing. I just, it, it doesn't, I don't know if I'm like desensitized to it in a way. I don't know. I just, I, I don't find I Ghostbusters no. as funny as no. I think I'm supposed to find it. Oh my God. <laughs> I think I'm going to do it. I, I think. I, so for I, me, Star no. Wars is in. I'm keeping Star Are Wars. Are you serious? Really? Star I'm gonna, Wars over. I can't, I'm gonna we're keep, not even I'm friends. Gonna, I am. I'm, that's <laughs> it. The end of this. We're done. Hang on. The podcast is over. Hang on, hang on. I can't believe you. Um, this is what you wanted out of this segment. It's to get I, I me think, like this. No, I don't even know that it is because oh, I, I'm you. I'm keeping Star Wars. Oh. And uh, and actually, you know what? 
I'm not going to, like you, I'm not going to have a whole lot of trouble letting Indiana Jones go. It wasn't my, it wasn't my franchise of choice growing up. I, Mm. I like those Indiana Jones movies, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't, I think I might be like just young enough that I wasn't like running around with a whip in the backyard. Like maybe somebody a little closer to your age was, and then now we, we have back to the future and that. Back to the Future, even just the first movie, mm. I think is so wonderful mm-hmm. that I, I don't know. I don't know that I could go the rest of my life without ever seeing the first one. I like the second one. It's I think good. the third one's fine. Yeah. Uh, but so for me, it really does come down to Ghostbusters versus Back to the Future. And. I'm going to keep Ghostbusters. All of this. Oh, all of this. And I'm I'm keeping Ghostbusters because you got me so I sure did get you so upset. I stand by I stand by what I said. Yeah. I I actually don't think Ghostbusters to me now is as funny as I think of it as being Mm -hmm. and yet for the reasons that you stated (laughs) because it is such a kind of a a fab part of the fabric of of my day in you know the references and all of Mm -hmm. are you the key master all of that (laughs) kind of stuff i just i guess there's i don't want to live in a in a a pop culture that doesn't have the ghostbusters in it Mike, one of the things that we've really steered clear of in our choices have been some of the classic, classic, terrible movies that are out there, mm-hmm. largely because you did this show for about 100 episodes, you know, around 10 years ago. And, you know, I don't want to play it again, Sam, necessarily. Sure. But there is a movie that I don't think you did, and it is a director that I think is worth us discussing because I am not your old co-host. So it's a very different thing. (laughs) And in this case, we are going to, we're going to talk about Ed Wood. You're going to watch an Edward D Wood Jr. Film. Okay. And the one that you're going to be assigned, do you have a guess? Do you know what it's going to be? I mean, uh, the, the classic obviously is plan nine. It's not plan nine. Glenn Glenn or Glenda. I don't know. Boom. There you go. Second. Is that the one you got? Glenn or Glenda. You're Glenn or Glenda. Next time on film jitsu, We'll be talking about Glenn or Glenda, directed by Edward D. Wood Jr. And what was one of his more personal films? What is our bottom five going to be? So, Mike, what I want to do with this one is, and it takes a little explanation, Bella Lugosi is credited as a big deal in this movie, even though really he's just kind of featured and they used his name to kind of sell it. Sure. That's what I want to do. So what we're calling it is bottom five misleading marquees. So okay. it's, it's people that are in movies ish, but that sold uh-huh. as if they're really in it. And okay. what are the worst of those? I think Michael Madsen is like the king of this thing where yeah. he's, he, he shows up and like, he's the waiter and he hands somebody a glass, but he's on the poster, right? Yeah, exactly. That, That's exactly that what we're talking about. Okay. You got it. All right. For next week, I'm going to give it a go. Glenn or Glenda. So until then, we've been your hosts, 
I am Jay. And I am Mike. And we will see you next time. I'm like the Eeyore of fucking film jitsu. <laughs> I guess I gotta watch another movie. If you ask me, and nobody ever does. <laughs>